Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. With me is Italian foodie extraordinaire, Thea Lenaduzzi. Thea. Hello. Marmite spaghetti. Yes. I've had it. Have you actually? I promise you, I, I nearly took a picture to send it to George in our office, but I didn't have my phone near me, so I thought... I and did you did you have it by yours as you sort of get back from work and set it up just for you, or did you cook it for your family? No, I'd my, like some my, Yeah, okay. My wife doesn't eat carbohydrates. My, At all? Not really. Wow. My uh, son doesn't eat pasta, and my daughter and son don't really eat wet food. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I was doing it by myself. Um <laughs> And do you know what? It was nice. It was butter. It didn't taste like pasta being strewn through the roasting juices. Mm-hmm. It tasted like Marmite, mm. but buttery Marmite. It tastes like Marmite on toast, basically. Right. And did you put cheese on it as yeah, well? Parmesan yeah, Parmesan cheese, Marmite, butter, a little bit of the pasta water. Yeah. It wasn't bad. I feel like some herb would be good. I don't know, like parsley or Are you maybe ever thyme. Are you ever going to try it? Probably not. No, I have no need. <laughs> no one has any need. I didn't have any. I didn't have any need. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out what what isn't wet food in a sense. What how? Oh, so my kids they have rusks. The, no, they eat like meat, and vegetables. Just no gravy. No gravy. So no, no sauces. sauces. They're not really into sauces, but they'll eat like fish and raw vegetables. I mean, they're kind of healthy, but yeah. it's just they won't eat. They won't eat things like lasagna or stuff. I know this is. This, I know. Well, Matt's now screwing his face up. You want me to move on? I know this is a literary podcast that we're talking about my family. I'm fascinated. Yeah. We need to do a whole food podcast. Have we not done that? We don't, we've not really done one, have we? We haven't. And I wonder, actually, because we're going to be talking about um, a sort of cultural history of fabrics, it's much the same story. It's yeah. Worth, it's, it's, it's history that's traditionally been undervalued because it, because it vanishes, there are no traces, but also because it's women's work. Think of the difference between a cook and a in chef. the kitchen and a chef. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, all right. We both said exactly at the same time. All right. We should do a food. Okay. Note that down, someone. We'll try and do a food one. Uh, make sure you subscribe to the TLS wherever you can. Google TLS subscriptions and get a good offer. Coming up this week, we look at the rise of the myth of an egalitarian post-racial America. Novelist Lady Hubbard will talk to us about the roots of the Black Lives Matter movement. 
Staying stateside, we'll look at the career of 19th century postal official and self-appointed censor Anthony Comstock. Elaine Showalter will give details, and there will be dildos. There won't be dildos. There will be dildos. Well, there, there will not be dildos. Well, Comstock was trying to stop dildos. <laughs> uh, we're going to hear the story of women, as Thea says, weaving and the rewriting of history. Cassia Sinclair has produced an essay for us on this weirdly fascinating topic. If you look at a picture of Anthony Comstock, you'd see a type of smug Victorianism, an angry gammon with sideburns. And your analysis would be largely correct. Comstock was a religious campaigner, a self-styled weeder in God's garden, who wanted to remove lewdness and profanity wherever he encountered it. He created the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice and campaigned for a law that would prohibit the delivery of obscene, lewd or lascivious material by the US Postal Service. His sense of what might fall into those categories was pretty broad. Elaine Showalter this week has reviewed a book called Lust on Trial, Censorship and the Rise of Obscenity in the Age of Anthony Comstock by Amy Werbel, which explains in great detail about this menace. Elaine joins us on the line now. Hi, Elaine. Hi. Firstly, I want to ask you a question related to your first paragraph. Why did you used to tell your students to remember the year 1844? Well, I mean, this is when I would, you know, begin my classes on Victorian literature and culture. And I would say there are a lot of dates during this period that are important. But I think the most, the key one for you to know is 1844, the vulcanization of rubber. And little did I know, you know, the extent of that discovery. I mean, I was thinking about contraception, you know, cheap workable, effective contraception for the masses, um, I did not realise what some of the other implications of the vulcanization of rubber would be. And what would they be, Elaine, in, according to this book? I was astounded to start reading about dildos in New York uh, in the 1870s, and they were being confiscated by the thousands, and they were being marketed extensively and expensively, and Comstock, among others, couldn't figure out who was buying them. Who would want such an instrument? He could not imagine who it might be. And it was six, because, well, six dollars, quite yeah. expensive, yeah. The equivalent of $116 in today's money. Yes, this is incredible. See if they have worked this out. And it is absolutely staggering, isn't it? And you just have to imagine that there were women who were just willing to pay. But from Comstock's point of view, he could not imagine what the market was. He could not, they could not believe generally the evangelicals and, and the American Victorians could not imagine that women had any sexual desire. So clearly, no decent woman would have any interest in such an object. Maybe prostitutes were buying it, but it was so expensive. They just had no idea what the market might be, but it was really out there. And then they kind of publicized these dildos and increased it. Yeah, I love that you say there's a great like Canny readers also used the band list as a shopping catalogue. It included prices, dealers and locations. So Comstock became an accidental advertiser of dildos. Those are the in unintended consequences of the crusade against obscenity. I mean, he was collecting and then he got some power from the post office to confiscate and even, you know, impound and destroy these objects. And that was massively covered by the newspapers. This was in New York. New York had 
you know, eight daily newspapers and probably dozens more magazines and foreign papers and foreign language papers. So they were, this was being publicized massively and people were finding out that this stuff was to sale and being able to figure out where they could get it. It was a, it, it was a perfect storm, you know, of, of prosecution and publicity. Should we go back to the beginning then about Comstock? Why, why was he so angry about sex? Well, I mean, he, he was an evangelical. He came from a poor Connecticut family. Um, you know, you could say the usual psychoanalytic thing, heavy father, difficult family. But he was an absolute, um, he, he saw himself as a soldier of the cross. He was out to rid America or New York at any rate of vice. He saw it as corrupting children. Um, and, and he was appointed by the Lord to take care of it. He had no power, really. I mean, he had no office or position, but he managed to find rich Christian businessmen who were willing to fund his crusade um, and who organized through the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association, uh, the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. All of which is is obviously very political. Do we know if he considered running for office? (laughs) Apparently not. I mean, he didn't have a law degree. I don't think he had real political ambitions. The highest post he ever achieved was as a post office inspector. It's not even clear what that meant. Uh, But he had connections to the police department. And he had this very powerful industrial backing that gave him the money um, to follow his bliss, so to speak, (laughs) and to get some legislation passed. But it wasn't just about sex. He, he His views expanded a little bit, didn't it? I mean, he had a big problem with women's rights, with the rights to vote and things like that. Is that right? Yes. Well, you know, a lot of people writing about Comstock see him really as an opponent of contraception. And that was where the campaign led. And that was where some of the most famous court cases were. And that's, I think, his... Uh, how he's regarded now. And certainly that was the direction to which all of this headed. But before he got there, um, he kind of expanded his, you know, his, his sites. He started off with uh, pornographic books and photographs and sex toys and um, peep shows and burlesque and so on. And eventually he was feeling so strong that he went after fine art He went after the art studios. He went after the art dealers in New York. He went after important writers. And they, of course, began to fight back. And they had much more powerful tools than he did. And at that point, I think he pulled back a little bit. He became a comic figure in cartoons in the New York papers. And Shaw had a go at him. Mark Twain had a go at him. Uh, he, He became a kind of clown. So he turned his sights on contraception and the campaigns of Margaret Sanger. Well, and it's true that he does sort of seem less angry about sex than about anything to do with the so-called new woman, really. Like, you know, these women on their bicycles. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, that was always behind it. I mean, and, and his horror and disbelief uh, that women actually could seem to be enjoying any of this. Of course, he went after women who were running brothels. He went after women who were performing in burlesque shows. Uh, he went after an abortionist who famously committed suicide he was kind of stunned by the whole phenomenon and he very much went after women who posed naked in in art studios and so they became 
the subtext of all of his campaigns is the idea of women openly expressing any kind of desire or or interest in this disgusting material. Which I suppose brings us back to dildos and the idea that presumably he was so enraged by them because it implied that women might be able to look after themselves without yeah. a man. Yeah. Amy Werbel ends the book with this optimism. She talks about the America in the 20th century growing ever more pluralistic, progressive and innovative. And that kind of was the answer to Comstock. Comstock was ultimately on the wrong side of history and was therefore consigned to it. Uh, are you buying that? Uh, it's hard to be sure. You know, I wish I could say yes. I mean, on the on the one hand, you have what seems like on, on, on the Democratic side, an incredible expansion of social and sexual freedom. And on the Republican side, such a war against most recently transgender people, certainly against abortion, certainly behind that against contraception of all kinds. And it sort of begins to say, well, we, we have a, a president who is hardly, hardly a model uh, soldier of the cross in every way and who flaunts that. But the party behind him acts as if they are standing up for a return to some kind of 18th century American Puritan values. So it, it's a little alarming, Is more it, than a little. What's the argument about contraception? I, I, I've, I've read the abortion stuff, obviously. So behind that is an argument that what, Republicans to ban all, all contraception, yeah. You can't, I mean, what, to, to ban contraception? Yeah, yeah, I mean, every time these things are discussed, there's somebody who begins to say, well, you know, why stop there? Why stop there? I mean, God's plan is to, you know, reproduce, be fruitful. God wants this to happen. You can't interrupt it. And once that kind of evangelical um, passion starts to be unloosed, I mean, it... it it hasn't happened, but it's it it it's too soon to feel like this is totally over. Reading this book, which I think she finished just before the election of Trump, it ends in a very upbeat way. Um, but I think about a day later, things were taking a very different turn. And presumably, with Kavanaugh in the Supreme Court, how consequential is that in this sort of area? Because presumably the only reason he's in the Supreme Court is they want a person with views in the realm of reproductive rights, which is uh, very, very conservative. Do you do you play that forward into to, to something which is pretty gloomy in contrast with what uh, Amy Werber was saying? I do. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I grew up, you know, I, I grew up, I, I certainly was part of the underground feminist um, fight about abortion and belonged to groups in the women's movement where he tried to refer people to doctors who performed uh, or then illegal abortions or to send people uh, to other countries. I mean, I, we're beginning to think, well, will we have to send American women to Northern Ireland to have an abortion? Is that coming up in the next 20 years? It's not inconceivable. And once you're in the Supreme Court, that's it. It's not like Kavanaugh's going anywhere now, is he? He's there for, he's there for life. He's there for life. He's going to certainly outlive me. It, it's terrifying. It's really terrifying. And, and, and the weapons against it, you know, are, are really public opinion and the vote. So we shall have to see. But the career of a Comstock, um, with all of its comic elements, it isn't that there isn't a lot of comedy in what the Republicans are doing. And thank God for Saturday Night Live and the late night shows and a lot of wonderful satirists. But satire doesn't get the law passed. So it, 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 it's pretty alarming. And there's always been, you know, there's, there's a, a comic side to all of this. 
Comstock was a comic figure. Anti-vice crusades, purity crusades have their comic element. Pornography has its comic element. But when you're up against something that really is life-threatening for, you know, millions and millions and millions of women, um, the the joke stops there. Elaine Schulter, thank you very much indeed. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This summer marked the fifth anniversary of the Black Lives Matter movement and, says Lady Hubbard writing in this week's TLS, the emergence of a new era in anti-racism activism. Since the phrase first began to circulate on social media in 2013 following the acquittal of George Zimmerman for the murder of the teenager Trayvon Martin, the movement's growth, to a point of now international recognition, reads as a list of names. After Trayvon Martin came Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Walter Scott, Freddie Gray, Sandra Bland, each the victim of a system that apparently judges the value of lives and behaviours differently depending on skin colour. In the meantime, President Barack Obama embarked on a second term in office. Part of the power of the Black Lives Matter motto, Lady Hubbard says, was that it drew attention to the discrepancy between the way the US has historically chosen to represent itself and a far more brutal anti-egalitarian reality. Scrutinising that discrepancy, Lady discusses three books that consider what it means to be black in America right now, including The Fire This Time, a James Baldwin-inspired collection of essays, and My Brother Moochie, a study in internalised racism. Lady Hubbard joins us on the line from New Orleans now. Hello, Lady. Hello. You describe this new era for anti-racism activism. What exactly, what characterises it? Can you sort of start by running us through some of the cultural obstacles to equality that have replaced more explicit legal ones? Yeah, well, I think that a lot of what is happening right now, um, I think the Obama presidency had a very interesting effect on on culture. And and interestingly, prior to that, there was a a reluctance 
to really discuss race and racism in the United States in a way that was very honest. The idea that we were living in a post-racial society was something that was very, very aggressively promoted prior to his election. And strangely, it, it sort of seemed to have the opposite effect. When he became president, people began to become more direct in talking about the persistence of racism. And also a lot of people see the, the Trump presidency as a, as a response it's a very disturbing time. It's like hard to contrast President Obama with what we have now, but a lot of people do see that as a, as a response. I think on the part of African Americans, there was a, it was very difficult. There was a period following the civil rights movement up until the um, election of Obama that was actually very difficult in terms of trying to articulate what was going on in the United States in terms of race, because the idea that we'd overcome all of these um, obstacles was was being promoted so heavily and sort of pushed so aggressively on people. And of course, under the Obama presidency, the events that led to the Black Lives Matter movement took place. Right. Um, so so right. I, I remember once talking to his speechwriter, Obama's speechwriter, and he said, look, we didn't solve racism. Because some people would always say, well, you've, a, a black president should mean that institutionalised racism has been defeated in the United States of America. And of course, it didn't mean that at all. Was there a sense of, of, of false hope, I suppose, attached to, to the Obama presidency, as demonstrated by the events that led to Black Lives Matter? When I was reading the essays in... Um the fire this time, I talk about it. A lot of the writers in, in, in various ways are, are actually talking about the discrepancy between the idea that this is a equal egalitarian society and sort of the, the problems of, of race had been solved with the civil rights movement and certainly that the Obama presidency was sort of the culmination of all of this. And still underneath that, a, a, a very palpable sense that 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 was not the, the reality that people were living and experiencing. Um, I feel like there was almost a loss of, of language for a minute. There's like a, it was very hard to articulate what being black or brown in the United States felt like. Um, and, and that when Obama became president and that should have meant everything was perfect, it sort of exacerbated an awareness of the ways in which it wasn't. And that this was an illusion and there are all these things going on underneath. And I'm, I'm saying it that way because I certainly don't think that um, Trayvon Martin was the first victim of this type of violence and racism. And the, the timing is, I, because I do not fully understand it, I, I just thought it was, um, it was somehow Obama being president or his, as a symbolic figure, it, it seemed to give people they felt like they could discuss these things more more openly. Yeah, because you, you would expect that Obama, a man like Obama becoming president, would, would somehow change the way that the average black man is, is perceived by others, when in fact the Black Lives Matter movement was founded as a direct reaction to the fact that Trayvon Martins, he was being posthumously placed on trial for his own murder because the black man is still perceived as a threat. Um, you mentioned that Jessamine Ward uh, collection of essays there, The Fire This Time, we get an early example of that kind of negative stereotyping, which really makes clear how long, you know, this this has been going on. Perhaps you could tell us about about Phyllis Wheatley's husband. Ah, uh, the dear pledges of our love, a defense of Phyllis Wheatley's husband by Honoré Fauna um, Jeffers. Um, the essay is about the characterization of Phyllis Wheatley's husband. 
she was struck by the way in which he was described conformed to so many negative stereotypes of African-American men um, that she sees as still being pervasive today. And so she was trying to verify it and, and sort of trace it back, like where did this representation come from? And, and when she did that, she found there really was no credible source. There was nothing to support this this narrative of him having been a waste of space, probably abusive, who ran off and left his poor wife to cope alone. That's right. That's right. And um, part of what I thought was so interesting is because um, the fact that it is not sort of the point of the story when, like she said, most people don't even know who Phil, that Phyllis Wheatley was married. It sort of underscores how insidious mm. it is because you just accept it as truth and it becomes a detail. She was married to this person and, you know, but it obviously, because it isn't so enduring, um, it does have an effect, but you, you don't necessarily pay attention or, or focus on it. Um, and yet you accept it. You connect mm-hmm. that really movingly with Garnet Cadogan, this astonishing, uh, which is an account of a, a black man saying how he has to, when he walks the streets, Right. He has a it's a, he calls it a complex complex and often oppressive negotiation because she he's conscious of the stereotype that he Im, is seen to embody, and therefore right. it actually alters his behaviour. He doesn't turn around too quickly, or if he sees a white woman walking towards me at night, he crosses the street to reassure her that she was safe. So, even someone who knows the stereotype is untrue still has to adapt his behaviour to the stereotype because that's more powerful than the truth. Right. And it's it's adapting, trying to figure out how to adapt your behavior to refuting the stereotype. <laughs> and I thought that just the simple act of walking down the street, the amount of sort of um, energy that has to be put into to not confirming somehow in your being um, someone else's sort of um projection on you it has nothing to do with you and I think that um that certainly is part of the uh the challenge of of racism for people that uh that actually have to deal with it on a on a daily basis it's also because it changes where he where where he's walking when he walks in different spaces um he he perceives that the ideas about him are are mutable and that's also because again it's it's their projections um, so it's not just one, you know, okay, this is how people perceive me, and so this is how I must be at all times. No, it's like you, it's this it's this variable act, and it's like a constant thing that he has to be aware of and and figuring out how to negotiate. And I thought that um he expressed that very succinctly. And I think so. possibly, I mean, even more extreme than this preempting of other people's prejudice is um, Isaac Bailey's book. That that gives us a clear example of um, James Baldwin's statement that the details and symbols of the world we live in are deliberately constructed to make you believe what white people say about you. Perhaps you can tell us about My Brother Moochie because that sounds that sounds like a very important book. I thought it was very, very honest about sort of the repercussions. The, the essays in... Um, Jasmine Ward's book, they're pretty much, I mean, they're all very different, but these are perspectives. They understand what is happening to them. They're sort of very self-aware. So they're talking about things that are painful, but it's, they seem to be sort of on top of it. Like they have survived it and they're figuring it out and it's a constant negotiation, um, but they're fine. And I thought in, in contrast, 
my brother Muchi seemed to be about um, when all of that pressure kind of becomes too much and it, it literally is, is physically debilitating because he talks about his, um, his stutter as a, and a manifestation of, of grief and trauma, but also just in, incredibly emotionally debilitating as well. And, we, we, um, should, we should start at the beginning with that one though because he, so what happens in the book is his, his brother, the Moochie of the title, I think he's called Herbert Moochie, um, as, Bailey, as a sort of Bailey, as a, as a nickname, Moochie. So he he committed a crime. He murdered a man, uh, and, yeah. and was sent to, and was sent to jail. And so this is the story of his brother Isaac Bailey, dealing with the fact that his brother was the black man that everyone was being told was a threat. That's right. That's right. And he he he's very. Um, I really respected the honesty of the book because he he says he didn't feel like there was any way to sort of as as the younger brother to express his grief and trauma because no one has um, any empathy for what his brother did and they they don't really have any empathy for the families that are left shattered by these types of events and so he had a hard he talks about his um, other siblings having a really hard time accepting that um, their brother had actually committed this crime. And, and once he does that, there's there's really no place to express any grief about what, what happened. It's just totally inexcusable. And it's something for which his brother will never be forgiven. And so that that's very complicated in and of itself, um, just talking about the criminal justice system in the United States and, and why... Um, you know, he, he gets into all of that and he says, well, it's not really an excuse. So it, he really is talking about um, the emotional processing of he's obviously a very intelligent man. I understand growing up in poverty might lead to this and this and that. But does it simply produce monsters? Like, is that is that really an excuse? Like all this talk about racism, it's not ultimately an excuse for someone taking um, another person's life. The real thing was that he did not have an outlet to express any sort of emotional empathy for his brother. And this is someone he loved. And he began to see all of these ideas about his brother being seen as a monster for this crime he committed as, as reflecting on who he was. And he says at the very beginning of the book that um, he began to think that he was the most immediate threat to his own family and began having violent fantasies of killing his wife and his child. And that's how he realized he, he needed help. And it, it really was about the having absorbed all of these negative ideas and really having no way of, of, of sort of expressing them or an outlet for all this pain that he was in because he felt that he was not someone that anyone would have any um, sympathy for. So he kind so of internalises the racism himself, isn't it? Because he, he tells a story, as, as you put it, that you know he, he rejects a girlfriend because she's too dark. He doesn't go to a black university. So he, he almost internalises the forces that he sees around him and, and, and starts looking at black and white people differently himself. Right. So yeah, he talks about when I was talking about Garnett's essay and trying to refute stereotypes, but it just it seems to have led to a total rejection of sort of black boys. He says at one point that black boys were the embodiment of everything he didn't want to be. And he's trying to distance himself. But obviously he can't because it's when you know, it, it, it's who he is. He's talking about himself as well. So clearly he should he should when he looks in the mirror 
these ideas about what black men are um, because I can see myself and I'm not like that. But instead, it's it sort of becomes, well, maybe I am. Maybe I, he becomes suspicious to himself. And in fact, and, he, he cites a, a damning implicit bias test carried out at Harvard University that half of all black people find it easier to associate black faces and negative labels than white faces and negative words. Among white people, this goes up to 80%. Right, which is important. I mean, it's it's like what um, Phyllis Wheatley's husband. I mean, you, you, you have to, it requires so much vigilance, constant vigilance, not to absorb some of these ideas. Like, I mean, the, the amount of questioning that you would have to do about so many things that are assumed um, as fact is is uh, becomes very overwhelming for for people. I think sometimes, but that's that's part of what what that is. If you just passively absorb things, um, you, some of those if they become part of your truth, they are they do have a, a a bearing on how you perceive yourself as a as a brown person or a black person. Lady Hubbard, we will have to leave it there. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you, ladies. I mean, it's very, it's very easy to, um, and I mean, I commissioned this piece. It's very easy to commission a piece like this, and 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 then read it and and point the finger at the US and say, look what's going on over there, isn't it atrocious? And then, you know, last week was it, or the year, the week before, the the UK government released its its figures, and it's sort of a similar trajectory. Black men are three times more likely to be arrested than white men. Yeah. Here, women, black women, twice as likely. And then you look at his institutionalised racism, which the McPherson report here pointed to. Mm. Is it often association of broader social factors that uh, uh, black people in certain cities are often more likely to be poor, more likely to be deprived, and therefore more likely to commit crimes? Mm. And the problem is you can make all sorts of narrow judgments, yeah. but there's often a broader egalitarian, which is the whole point of this piece, that you know the subdeck is the myth of an egalitarian post-racial America that 10 years ago or five years ago we might have all said... It's heading in one direction. But it's always good to remember that, not good, but it's salutary to remember that Black Lives Matter is not a product of Trump. The history of textiles, of weaving, of making fabric for human use is a very long one. The earliest threads spun by human hands go back some 32,000 years. But natural fibres are perishable. They don't form the basis for most archaeological finds and so can get overlooked when we try to consider societies older than our own. The history of textiles is also a history of gender and the occlusion of women. What we wear is central to who we are and how we live and yet we tend to attach little importance to those who make our clothes or made them in past societies. As uh, ever in the historical record and in lived experience, the role of women is overlooked or downgraded. Cassie St. Clair has written a book called The Golden Thread, How Fabric Changed History, which tells the tale via 13 individual stories. Her eye-opening essay is in the TLS this week, and she's sitting right here in our podcast studio now. Cassie, hello. Hello. So before we talk big picture, because it's a, it's a very broad history which, um, about weaving, which has social implications, can we talk about spacesuits? Yes. Because this was my favourite bit of the essay, and I'm sure of, of uh, the book too. Explain what happened when... This is for, for, for Neil Armstrong to go on the moon. He needed a spacesuit. 
Yes. What happened? So, in fact, the whole history of um, spacesuits is rather incredible, and it, it forms um, one of the chapters of the book. But um, this particular um, spacesuit is, is rather incredible. You, it's the, the spacesuit you kind of imagine. It's the kind of squishy, um, white, teddy bear-like one, I suppose. And it was the um, one that was worn for mankind's first steps on the moon. But the story of making it is rather incredible because you kind of tend to you know, think of um, spacemen and spacesuits as being the highest of, of high tech, and in, and in some ways they are. The um, those spacesuits are kind of twenty one layers, and they're made up of kind of various different you know synthetics. Um, however, the actual making of them was done in a rather craft like way, using traditional patterns and adapted um, Singer sewing machines, and they were actually manufactured um, by a company most famous in America um, for making bras and girdles but this was the company that had the expertise you know using sort of thin layers of latex um, and, uh, and and fine um, nylon mesh that they used for bras but were also included in spacesuits. And Very interesting sorry that this uber male kind of iconic yeah. male thing of the spacesuit actually owes a great deal to the bra. Mm, yeah. And it's women who made them. And it was women who made them. But they're when it gets translated to NASA, it, they're, they're part of the story you don't often hear. I mean, it's now become famous, the role of female scientists and mathematicians mm. who helped yeah. power NASA uh, and a, a kind of historical writing of wrongs to focus mm. on them. But you, th- these women have almost been written out of, of, of the story. Well, this is sort of a, a side story. I mean, NASA used a lot of subcontractors and um, uh, Playtex uh, was one of these. And they uh, were kind of a sort of scrappy... Um, company. They they weren't um, in the NASA mould. NASA is um, very particular when it comes it's to to its subcontractors, and it speaks in a very particular, um, very techy engineering um, type language. Even then, and so the way that um, these suits were made was just anathema to the um, NASA way of doing things. The fact that they were using traditional um, uh, patterns and the fact they were using adapted Singer sewing machines just did not um, translate very well at NASA. And they were constantly, you know, even while the spacesuits themselves were sort of being commended for how brilliant they were, um, the uh, technical details that came along with them, which NASA demanded um, of them, were just not up to spec. And so in the end, the company had to hire an entire team of um, trained engineers essentially to translate the work that was actually being done by women to make these spacesuits and to translate this into technical diagrams and drawings and a language that NASA would accept and understand. Male, uh, for men to understand. Yes. Women's work being translated into male language. Yes. And is that exclusive, basically, kind of a jargon? To make it to make it a jargon that NASA. liked and is familiar with. And this is still a problem. I actually spoke to um, uh, another subcontractor and they used a a very different form of language and a much politer form of language and I'll try not to get them into trouble. But they um, sort of laughed when I told them this story because it was very familiar to them even Mm. now. They're now making um, harnesses um, that the astronauts wear when doing exercise um, in zero gravity um, because obviously it's hard to to run on a treadmill if you're you're floating around. Um, But they said that there's still this, you know, real desire for acronyms and technical jargon mm. um, that can be quite exhausting. You would say, sorry, in a side on a side note, you would see that in moisturising and kind of cosmetics as well. Because if Go you on. ever if you ever read the instructions, not that women need instructions on a pot of moisturiser, but um, 
I have to say, I've never not, read the instructions. <laughs> exactly. But on, on if you read the, bo- the back of a man's one, it tends to say things like, rub vigorously, which is completely the opposite of what we're told or what, you know, what our mothers oh, told us or something. Oh, rub vigorously. Be tough. Exactly, be tough. Be tough with your moisturiser. <laughs> Making it comfortable to a male, uh, male well, audience. Can we, if not from the tale of the moisturiser, <laughs> but can we from the tale of the spacesuit draw conclusions here, Cassie? Or is this something that is effectively a good example of... Um, history of textiles, history of cloth and weaving, absolutely central to human survival, to human history, it tends to be just pushed off to the margins and, and ignored and, and rewritten and, and rescoped. Is that fair? I think it is fair. And I have to say it was a real, um, uh, not a problem for me, but a real source of anxiety for me while I was writing The Golden Thread, because I felt that I would um, start telling you know, if I was asked about what I was doing now, I would start telling people that I was uh, writing a, um, uh, a book about the history of different fabrics. And I could literally see people's eyes power down. And I just thought, oh my God, I haven't even finished this book yet. What? No one is going to read it because they just hear textiles and they think, not for me. And that was particularly um, uh, the case with, with my male friends. You know, we'd have really yeah. earnest conversations and we'd, we'd Know, try and they try and think of titles that would sort of you know make it more relevant and I was like this is ridiculous these are we get up every day and we, we wear clothes we buy and, and use textiles um, on a daily basis how is it that um, these you know cloth has just been relegated to um, to, to sort of nothing well how is it when it's so important well why I think um Part of it is that um, familiarity breeds contempt. I think we're very, we're so used to textiles, we've stopped seeing them. And I also think that historically, there's there's firstly the um, the problem that, you know, most natural fibres rot away within, you know, a few months, um, let alone um, decades or years. So a lot of the historical record is just absent. Um, but then you also have this problem that because up until um, the 20th century, this was something that was the kind of quotidian um, daily work of women and, you know, women of, of whatever class were expected to have these skills. This made the potential pool of um, people who were available to, to, to work in textiles, um, you know, vast. And it also kind of meant that it was harder to take the work seriously. You tend to um, really value things that are scarce. But if this is something that you expect most women are able to do, then how can you place a real value on it if you're seeing it done every day? So is it a perfect? Did you find as you're writing it is a night? It's an it's the perfect almost metaphor for how the work of women and the role of women is valued over a large historical sweep of time because the two become intimately connected. This mm. is women's work mm. and therefore it's underappreciated and it's underappreciated because it's women's work. It's, it's, it's possibly hard to pick where which, where that starts. Yeah, it's a bit of a... Um, it, is, it is a real problem. And even um, for women who have gone on to become you know famous um, for their work, like Annie Albers, who's um, currently being celebrated at um, the Tate Modern, very often they, they come to it with a kind of a negative attitude. Oh, goodness, you know, this is something that is going to be um, thought less of because it's traditionally seen as, as female um, and therefore do, this is something I really want to do and then perhaps they fall in love with it but even as they are creating amazing works of art these works of art are you know somewhat stigmatised because of this associ- 
association that really hides um, the skill and the um, quite often the mathematical ability you have to have to create some of these textiles. You know, weaving and, and lace making, for example, you have to have a real grasp of um, of exactly sort of which threads are going to go where right from the very beginning, and that takes an awful lot of planning and and kind of a, a you know um, numerical literacy. And do we know that it has always been a woman's work? Do we know what are the kind of the earliest instances of of us being able to piece this together? It is, um, you know, the very earliest fibres. Who knows who was making them? What we've got now is such tiny remnants that we just don't know. However, and, and also there's sort of um, a difference over different societies. But for example, in ancient Greece, this was definitely, um, you know, really traditionally um, always um, considered something that was a part of the value of a woman, no matter again, Penelope. class. Penelope. Mm, and you mention all the deities, in fact, as well. Yes, there's deities, and also um, sometimes the the birth of a girl um, in in Greece was celebrated by sort of placing a little sort of um, piece of wool on the outside of the house, and often women were, were buried um, with spindles and, and things like that. You know, the, the tools of, of of fabric making. But in other cultures, um, for example, um, in India, uh, weaving in particular, but also sometimes spinning, was seen as men's work. And then it's interesting to. See see the different value that was placed on the work oh so it, when it was done by a man everyone whoa well, it's the same as a tailor versus a seamstress mm. it's the same job essentially but a tailor would be a, a more respected male position and mm. this seamstress is, is a lowly woman and there's a kind of class thing here isn't it? at the minute we still don't value our clothes we often don't demand to know where our clothes come from Maybe not class. Maybe it's a you know the, a lot of the clothes we will wear will be made by people who are paid very little money. Mm. Particularly if we buy global brands, they'll be made often in another country, often uh, with a supply chain that we wouldn't necessarily be comfortable with. It seems that that's not and that's not necessarily a gender thing, or it might have some gender implications. But we don't value what we wear now. We don't demand that it's 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 produced by people who are paid properly, and people are still underpaid mm. as weavers now. Yes, people, you know, the, the work of, of making the clothes that we wear every day um, is really undervalued and, and really underpaid. And you can see this, you know, in countries like um, Bangladesh, where the workforce is predominantly female and, and they're being paid far lower than what we would consider kind of a, a fair wage. Um, but I think that we've become really used in the in the past of um, 70 years to buying clothing very, very cheaply, mostly because it's made with um synthetics that are very cheap to produce and also the work um, of making the clothes um, largely sort of disappeared from view it stopped being something that you would do um, in your home and so you kind of knew the work that would go into it and it's sort of disappeared off very often often to, to other countries and we've lost the sense of what it actually means to make a piece of clothing and because we don't know how to do it it's very hard to value that work anymore you don't think okay if I was making this it would take x many hours because you, you've got no idea how long it would take so you say we, we, we buy clothing made of fabric and thread whose quality would have horrified a medieval housewife we've mm. actually gone backwards in, in, in a way in terms of, of the quality of, of, of stuff that we have yeah I, something that I um, found really interesting actually when I was um, uh, studying and doing my masters and um, was that uh, a huge proportion of people's income in the 18th century was spent 
on clothing, not on multiple items of clothing, but one or two items of clothing. But now we expect um, to be able to buy multiple pieces of clothing and we expect that they're going to sort of disintegrate after one or two um, wears. And that doesn't yeah. really bother us because it is cheap. Um, however, that would have horrified someone 100 years ago. I can't, wear a t- ago. I can't keep a T-shirt for more than about two months because you wash it mm. sort of four, four or five times, it mm. shrinks enough and, and then you've got to throw it away. I think there's some kind of sick irony in in the fact that all of this kind of this 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 badness that we've been talking about is born of of global trade that was facilitated by being able to make sails for ships <laughs> that then oh, created all of this. Oh, yeah, and that's led to um, sweatshops that are that are feeding the market. Global trade. That's a gloomy way of yeah. <laughs> You're anti-globalization. Well, I don't know, discuss. I'm a realist. Yeah, discuss. <laughs> uh, Cassie Sinclair, that was, thank you so much for, for thank coming you. in. Uh, that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Cassie Sinclair, Elaine Showalter and Lady Hubbard. Do what you can to get a copy of this week's TLS or subscribe so you never miss one next week. Are you ready, Thea? It's philosophy. What, for next week? Yes. <laughs> not yet. It's philosophy. <laughs> so we'll be inventing problems about how we perceive reality and then not actually solving them. Hitting our heads against. We do it twice a year, I feel. <laughs> the world will continue whatever we do. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.